welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 45, being recorded on Wednesday, September 14th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, a quick reminder to our listeners from our sponsor, nrfshop.org, that in about two weeks, we're going to be live podcasting from the annual Retail Summit in Dallas, September 26th to 28th. We look forward to seeing everyone there. Jason, was that a new intro? That absolutely was in honor of shop.org and us approaching our 52nd episode. Uh, I uh, decided to upgrade the audio a little bit. Uh, and a number of my more grammatically correct friends pointed out that the, the language in our original intro was not necessarily grammatically correct. So we have fixed it so that all those uh, Webster aficionados will get off my back. As a uh, as a output of the public school system of South Carolina, I didn't even notice that. So it's always good to have you uh, watching out for these things and fixing them. Yeah, I, I think we have our listeners to thank. I don't think either either of our public educations uh, uh, served us particularly well in this regard. <laughs> cool. Well, last week we were uh, in a bit of a frenzy here at the Jason and Scott Show over the iPhone Seven coming out, and um, Thursday, I guess Friday, in the we morning hours was pre-orders. Did, were you able to pre-order an iPhone 7? I was. Uh, I had a minor glitch, uh, which is uh, tragic to me because I have to confess that I finished last week's show by being dead wrong. I mentioned that I did not expect um, demand to greatly outsee, uh, exceed supply, and then I thought most people that wanted to get one on launch day would likely succeed this time around, and I was dead wrong, including for myself. So I got up at 2 a.m. Central, which is uh, uh, the time that the system went li- uh, live, and uh, tried for about 10 minutes to place an order on the mobile app and was not successful. And it, it had been a late night, so I actually fell asleep for about half an hour. And I woke back Oops. up. Yeah, I woke back up at like 2.45, and I was able to place an order. But already at 2.45, uh, the, the device I wanted was promised delivery for September 30th through October 4th. Mm. And are you? Uh, I know this is a personal question, so feel free not to answer this. Are you? Uh, are you going standard or plus? And then what color are you thinking? Are you gonna? There's a lot of controversy about around the two blacks. So you have the shiny jet black, and then the kind of more flattish black. Um, any yep. any thoughts on those things? So you actually dissuaded me from getting the jet black. I was originally leaning mm. towards it, um, and I normally am a, a no-case guy. So I, I risk it. I don't put a case on the phone, uh, and I don't treat it particularly well, and I, I frankly don't lose any sleep over the fact that it might not look perfect. Um, but it does just seem that the the jet black is going to show defects 
um, a little easier. And so I thought, given the fact that I wasn't going to use a case, um, that that might not be the way to go. But uh, but the vain part of me still needs everyone to know that I have the latest and greatest phone. So I had to get a color that wasn't previously available. So that that instantly drove me to the matte black. Cool. I also did the matte black and um even after I pointed out some that Apple had a warning that the jet black is easily scratched, um, I read a couple of the hands-on reviews, and uh, almost all of them were negative about the jet black. The fingerprints, the, the the demo models already had scratches on them, and one guy even said that it's such a slippery phone he almost dropped it two or three times. Like he literally had to hold it with, like you know, the analogy was a wet bar of soap that it like felt just very slippery to the feel because it's so shiny. So, so maybe we made the right choice there. And then I also. I also did the same thing as you did. I did not fall asleep. I was able to get, you know, I was getting a little impatient because by 3.20 my time, nothing was up. And then finally, um, you know, things came up and I was able to get the um, the order in uh, for Friday delivery. Uh, and then the what I noticed, though, is the jet black wasn't even at that point wasn't even available till November. So it seems like they have some, you know, the production of that is so complicated. It's going to take an extra, at least 30 or 60 days for those to start hitting the market. So, wow. so not only would you, you'd have to wait longer to get a scratchy fingerprinty phone that you dropped a lot. So I, I, I hope I influenced you to make the right choice there. Only time will tell. Yeah. I, I, uh, you have never, uh, steered me wrong in the past. So I am confident Another change, though, I know you were already on the plus, so this is the same form factor you're used to. I stepped up from the the 6S to the the 7 Plus, so I'll have to get used to the bigger phone now. Got it. Uh, and I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, I think it was today, Sprint and T-Mobile reported that they the first three days of orders were up 400% compared to last year's phone, which was the 6S, which is which is pretty impressive. Now, Apple historically had given out some numbers, and they're not going to do it this time. So that's kind of what we have is there's two carriers. I, I didn't see anything from Verizon, so I think it's just Sprint and T-Mobile that are, are kind of reporting some kind of momentum numbers there. Yeah, and it, uh, I mean, based on how quickly... Um, they, they missed that first day window, uh, the, you know, how, how busy the carrier said they were. And then there are a couple other anecdotal things, um, that I wanted to talk about, uh, including the Apple upgrade program. It seems by all, all of those indications that, uh, Apple had a pretty good day and there were a lot of people that were nervous, right? That, that, you know, they'd had their first down quarter, um, you know, they were on a cycle when usually they come out with a new form factor and they chose not to come out with a new form factor. And so people were worried there wouldn't be a compelling reason to upgrade and that it would be a financial challenge for, for Apple. And they appear to have, have uh, uh, done well in spite of those concerns. Yeah. And the, the one thing I thought was interesting as I went through the process that was different this year, and, and you have some insight on it, was there was no pickup in store option available. So in past years, what I would do is I would, I would get to the checkout and it would say, you know, enter your zip and then you could check the store to see if there's a, a pickup window. Um, and then I, I would decide if the pickup window was kind of after 3 or 4 p.m., I would generally have it delivered because it comes at that point anyway. Um, but historically, the e- earliest time to get the phone was uh, kind of a morning pickup window. Uh, and it's really painless. You just kind of go in for 20 minutes. You, you go, you give them your number and sign something and walk out. Uh, but that wasn't, they didn't have pickup in store available at all. And I, I thought that was kind of quizzical. And, and I think you've, you've figured out why that was. Uh, I do. I think it's because all the pickup in store uh, appointment windows are only available to people that are in the Apple upgrade program. So as a reminder for listeners, 
With the 6S, Apple unveiled a new program where you could purchase your phone direct from Apple the and have a uh, for a monthly payment and bundled in that monthly payment was the cost of the phone, uh, the Apple protection plus plan and a guarantee that you could always upgrade to a new phone whenever it became available. And so that, that program debuted with the six S. And so the Apple seven was the first time for all of those folks to get an upgrade. And there were some sort of interesting positive and negatives associated with that. My, my wife, actually bought her 6S phone on that program. So she was in that group of people that was eligible for the upgrade. And so unlike you, when she went in uh, to her mobile app uh, and entered her phone and tried to buy a new phone, it did offer her in-store appointments. And in fact, that was the only way she could get the upgrade was to have an in-store appointment because she has to bring her old 6S in and turn it into them. Um, and so it sort of forces those, those upgrades to be in store. And so I think they say, and they wanted all those upgrade people to have a good experience. So they saved all of those windows for her. Now she didn't, uh, hadn't made up her mind when, when I went to bed as to what phone she wanted. So I wasn't able to buy hers at three in the morning. So when she tried in the morning, all of the, the slots were essentially gone for any desirable phone. So like all of the, you know, the reasonable memory size phones were gone and all the pluses were gone. Um, and so she wasn't able to make an appointment. Um, and uh, unlike me, she's a little more patient. So she, she didn't particularly care about that. Um, but w- what I found interesting was just today, Apple opened up more appointments for those upgrade folks. And they opened up those appointments still for Friday. So today she was able to make an appointment to get a, a 128 gig a 7 plus at the store most convenient to us. And she'll be able to go in Friday and get that phone. Um, so they sent out an email to all the upgrade people saying, hey, if you weren't able to get an appointment last Friday, uh, we've given you more spaces you uh, you can you can book one now if you can't get an appointment for the phone you want call this number and and uh we'll we'll work something out they seem like they're they're giving very hands-on service to to those upgrade folks um which seems like the right thing to do i doubt it was driven by this but i also saw that yesterday uh, someone in california filed a class action suit against apple for not making the upgrade as convenient and easy as they promised when he signed up for it with his his success so they you know they probably both have a a good customer incentive and a mild legal incentive to make sure they they make those upgrades smooth for the people that are in the upgrade program Cool. So your wife that uh, is patient and doesn't exactly care about having the latest iPhone is going to have hers weeks before yours. How, how does that make you feel? Yeah, so it's crushing both because that uh, that <laughs> weekend, like, so she'll get her phone Friday. I won't because I fell asleep. And then I'll jump on a plane and I'll be visiting some clients in Europe for a week. So it would have been fun to have the phone for that. And then I get home to go straight to shop.org and I'll see you in your phone. And that will be crushing. Um, and my only recourse, because my wife doesn't care, I could, she'll happily give me her phone. So if I really cared, I could, uh, put my SIM in her phone, uh, un, uh, you know, install my backup onto her phone and take it for the two weeks. And, uh, and she would be nice enough to do that, but I probably won't bother. It probably doesn't bother me that much. Man, that's, uh, this could drive a wedge in a relationship. It's a tough decision. You know, do you, 
choose the better phone or potentially upset your wife. It's these are some some pretty tough decisions that we have to make as as a technologist out here in the world today. This is the it's modern tough. era that we live in. I'm lucky lucky enough to have a, a very supportive wife who's happy happy to help uh, with my my dysfunctional technology needs. Um, and I did notice one new tech thing. You know, obviously a lot of the details of the phone weren't weren't included in the announcement. And so, you know, one thing everyone was really interested in is how much memory is going to be in these phones. Not storage memory, but but uh, actual random access memory for for running apps. And uh, the it looks like there was no memory upgrade in the seven, and there is a memory upgrade in the seven plus. So it's probably going to three. Three megabytes, um, or three gigabytes rather, which was interesting to folks. Um, but a negative: the the camera now has optical image stabilization in the seven, which the six S did not. Um, the six S Plus did have optical image stabilization, and for those that don't know. That means the camera actually adjusts to movement in the phone so that it can uh, uh, get a, a, a more still picture when your hand is shaking or in super low light. So it's, it's a desirable feature, and uh, they, they finally moved it to all the phones, um, which was one of the big camera enhancements that people were excited about. But at the same time, they launched this second camera in the 7 Plus, and it came to light this week that that second camera does not have optical image stabilization. So those of us that are getting seven pluses, we have optical image stabilization on the wide angle lens, and we do not have it on the telephoto lens, which any photographers on the show will quickly recognize is exactly opposite of what you would want or expect. You would normally want the optical stabilization more on the, the longer focal length lens. So very curious why Apple made that decision. It feels like a little bit they just made one camera module that they were going to put in both phones and that's what had the optical and that they, you know, either through space or cost cheaped out on putting the the optical image stabilization on the the new camera in the 7 Plus. Cool. So we'll be able to make zoomed in telephoto fuzzy shaky pictures. Awesome. Exactly. Which we I'm personally really looking forward to seeing all of your family albums with that. <laughs> Cool. I'll be showing it off at the summit. Um, iOS is available for download. Did you kind of bite the bullet and go through that somewhat painful, long download process? I did. It was pretty smooth in my case. Some early installers uh, had their phones bricked. That's happened before. Um, and in fact, I think on the uh, on uh, iOS 8, they actually had to roll back the upgrades and stop them. Um, but it seemed like they were able to fix the problem pretty quickly in this case. And, and in my own upgrade, I did not have a problem. And I was particularly excited because there's a couple commerce features we talked about in the last episode. You uh, in, in iOS 10, you can now use Apple Pay in the Safari mobile browser. So I went to one of my favorite Shopify sites, which is uh, run by the former founder of Razorfish called Mouth.com. It's a great um gourmet food site out of New York where you can order all kinds of delicious gift items. And I found uh, three or four treats I wanted to buy, uh, put them in my cart, and was able to check out on the web using Apple Pay. And it was super seamless and fast, exactly as you would expect. So that was kind of exciting. Um, And then I also wanted to check out the App Store that's now built into Apple Messenger. So, you know, there's a a handful of apps that are already in there. There was nothing that jumped out at me as particularly commercey 
um, at the moment, but uh, I'm imagining we're going to see a lot more apps for Messenger, and and uh, I certainly expect that some of them are going to be very commerce oriented. Did you get a chance to try the new OS? I did. I, I spent most of my time in Messenger, just kind of messing around. The um, the gesture messages are kind of neat, totally un, un- commerce related. Uh, I did notice in the store there's Venmo and Square where you can send money in Messenger, so that that's kind of cool. Oh, nice. I haven't uh, haven't played with either of those yet. Cool. Well, um, so that's kind of some of the, the exciting gadget news. Uh, we're going to introduce a new segment in this week's episode, and we went out and solicited some questions from listeners. Um, this was kind of inspired by some folks that were tweeting to us, and we thought, hey, let's let's expand on this a bit and, and see if we can get some some interesting questions to to read on the air. Uh, so Jason, you want to kick it off? I do. Yeah. So we picked some of the good ones for this week. And one of the first ones is from a large Amazon seller and he wants to know he or she, um, if we think Amazon's long-term play is to, uh, focus on stocking one P inventory or three P inventory. And so Scott, I will, uh, uh, let you chime in on that. Yeah. And, um, just because we have listeners of all experience levels on this Amazon stuff, let, let me give a little kind of background on this question. So uh, there's two ways you can sell on Amazon. One is their traditional wholesale kind of vendor situation. So you're, you're what I would call a branded manufacturer or a vendor or just brand for slang. Uh, Amazon, you know, a buyer at Amazon calls you and says, Jason, I would like to buy 10,000 of your widgets. You negotiate a price, um, and then they buy those widgets. You ship them to them in mass. They sit in a fulfillment center, and then Amazon sells them. So that's kind of what is commonly called first party, or we abbreviate it one P. The other way of selling on Amazon is through the marketplace, and that's where you start. Uh, you know, Jason's widget store. You go to Amazon. You set up a little kind of account there, and you're able to sell direct to consumers through the marketplace. The um, couple things that are interesting. There's two different systems. One, Vendor Central, or VC, as we call it, uh, is for first party. Seller Central, or SC, is for third party. Um, and then um, another thing that's interesting is the differences between these things. So the the, the biggest difference is between 1P and 3P is essentially who sets the price in the different scenarios. So in 1P, Amazon sets the price. So even if uh, you have a minimum advertised price or map pricing, what Amazon does in practice is if they can find that product cheaper on the internet, they will go ahead and lower the price. So they kind of say, it's so important to us to be able to be price competitive. We we will follow your map pricing, but if we can find it somewhere else, like at a Walmart or a Best Buy or something like that, then, then we will lower the price. However, in 3P, you control the price. So if you want Jason's widgets to be $800 and they're available for $300 across the internet, then that's your, your prerogative. Um, so uh, another thing that's really interesting is Amazon says that they are neutral or agnostic on the two models. Now, it's my belief that the margin of the 3P is wildly higher than 1P. So uh, in the third-party market, they – 
they there's no cost of goods sold because the the business model that essentially the cost of goods sold is well one thing I should point out we mentioned this on the deep dive but in case anyone hasn't listened to that uh, number one go back and listen to that show but but number two the other key differential here is kind of a financial treatment that's outside of Amazon's control so if the exact hundred dollar widget is sold on one p Amazon's revenue is a hundred dollars. But if it's sold on 3P, because of gap accounting rules, they can only count their commission, which on average are 10%. So it only counts as $10, which sounds like you would never want to do that because you're shrinking your revenue. If you if you choose between 1P and 3P and you lose 90% of your revenue, essentially, by going 3P, that doesn't seem smart. But then when you actually kind of play out what happens after that, there's almost no cost associated with 3P. Amazon's not out any cash for inventory. Um, they don't have to warehouse the stuff. They can, but then the seller essentially pays for it. So that's a neutral or even slightly positive kind of development. So so the, the margin, the unit economics on 3P, I believe, are much more attractive than 1P at the end of the day because of that. So, um, so now to answer the question, um, if you look at the trend over time, historically, the third-party business has been growing um, at least twice as fast as the f- first-party business. Um, and uh, so that's one way to look at it. So I believe if we look at Q2, third-party, I'll just kind of give you rough numbers. Third-party was growing at about 45%, and first-party was growing at 22%. Uh, what's scary about those two numbers is e-commerce is growing at 15%. So you have 1P growing, you know, seven points over e-commerce, uh, and then 3P growing, you know, literally 3x the rate, the pace of e-commerce. Um, so, so you know, it the question makes it seem like there's there's you know, will another way to kind of play this out is why have 1p at all and i think i think amazon will always have 1p and the model i th- i kind of think about is and i think we covered this on the deep dive it may have been um, kind of towards the end there um so so amazon has 400 million products and i think of the the distribution curve you know the long tail distribution curve where you have your head products which are you know those top selling items like gopro and electronics and iphone accessories and things like that then you have some medium selling kind of products so maybe last year's ipad and some things like that uh, and then you have very slow kind of you know very long tail kind of products Amazon um, really stocks 1P. Uh, it's only of those 400 million items, maybe 4 million are actual 1P. But they are those you know, very high-volume products where Amazon wants to be competitive. So think about those, those top sellers in any Walmart, Best Buy, Target, the Dyson vacuum cleaners, the latest TVs, the latest cameras, that kind of stuff they really, really want to be price competitive on. So I think they will always have 1P because they really need to be able to set the price to, to be the world's lowest uh, kind of price on things for the value conscious. Then as they as they go down that curve, then you see 3P kind of take over. Um, so uh, the next piece is 3P and FBA, and there's another 10% of the SKUs, so call it another 36 million SKUs are in there. And then the other out of that 400 million, uh, you know, call it 300 million are in the long tail, which is 3P, not FBA. So to summarize, about 10% of that 400 million is prime eligible. Uh, 
one percent or four million is first party, where Amazon is the is the kind of the owner of the inventory. Uh, the next kind of nine percent is FBA third party, so it still is prime eligible. It's in the fulfillment uh, pieces, but it's it's got a huge margin. And then the other three hundred million items are in the third party. So, so I think you know we're at this kind of balance where fit, about fifty percent of the the item volume is third party. I, I actually think it would get. It can get as high as probably sixty to sixty-five percent, and and then Amazon will kind of balance it there because they're still going to want those really hot selling SKUs, and they will always make up thirty to forty percent of the overall GMV. Yeah, that I think that makes total sense. I, I think in the long run, they're going to definitely have a blend of both. So I don't think they have a long-term play to exclusively focus on one or the other. Three P is, as you pointed out, more. Probably more profitable, so uh, I certainly don't think they're moving away from that. But in the short run, what you have to recognize is uh, that demand it greatly exceeds supply for that that inventory um, location. Even though Amazon is growing their their fulfillment centers faster than anyone else, demand is still growing faster than they're able to grow their their supply. So as a 3P seller, you're going to keep getting squeezed. You're going to keep getting a worse and worse deal as, you know, Amazon has to to uh, leverage their their finite supply against almost unlimited demand. Yeah, and we're seeing that play out in our data. We we do the same store sales data and um we had this interesting stat that that so so our our Amazon same store sales has been growing a little bit slower than Amazon's uh, reported overall number and what we're finding is that the level of competition has grown like 300% year over year. So it's just this frenetic competition has kind of come into the marketplace and it's fed by marketplace sellers, brands going direct, Chinese companies kind of coming direct. So there's this you know the the secret is out and amazon is you know is is quite popular um and this is you know we could go on about this maybe for an hour but there's this really interesting kind of thing happening where a lot of the brands that are in 1p want to be in 3p a lot of the 3p people are now coming out with their own products private label products so they want to be in 1p so the worlds are really merging and it's becoming very murky and we're seeing more and more folks be they retailers or brands in both programs so it's, it's really a fascinating time and it's one of those areas where amazon's not a hundred percent you know, buttoned up where um, if you ask five different people at Amazon, you'll kind of get different answers of what what's going on if, if you're in one of those kind of scenarios. So it's it, it, it is one of the more interesting areas that, that we can report on more at, in a future episode. So the second question. And I'll, I'll uh, kick this one over to you. So enough hinting at the differences of opinion about mobile between Jason and Scott. Can you please spend some time explaining your different point of views? And this comes from our mutual friend, Scott Silverman. So you're the king of mobile, so I'll let you kind of take a first shot at that one. You can never have enough Scots on the Jason and Scott show. Uh, so the... I think it boils down to this: the there's this big problem in mobile. All mobile, uh, all traffic on uh, digital 
shopping sites is moving towards mobile. Most of the big retailers, more than 50% of their traffic is now in mobile. But we have this thing that I call the mobile gap, which essentially means that the conversion rate of that traffic on mobile is much lower than the, the traditional conversion rate on desktop. And so a year ago, it was sort of trending at about 4x. You were four times more likely to buy something if you came to a e-commerce site on a desktop browser than a mobile browser. And that gap has narrowed a little bit. Now it's more like 3x. And so I think the fundamental difference between Scott and I is I actually believe that in the long run, we're going to improve the mobile experiences enough that that mobile gap mostly goes away. Um, I actually don't think it's ever going to be exactly the same for, for some reasons I can get into, but the, um, uh, I think a lot of that mobile gap is the result of friction and in, in uh, extra pain in buying things on mobile devices and small screens. And I think we're every day seeing major improvements to the mobile experience that are going to reduce that um, that mobile gap. And so I, I counsel clients on reducing a lot of that friction on those mobile experiences. And when we reduce that friction, we, we get a much narrower mobile gap that way outperforms the industry average. So that's kind of my POV. And uh, Scott, I think you believe that the, the conversion gap is a little more endemic. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think the problem is we've taken these desktop kind of experiences and jammed them onto the phone and nobody wants to enter their bill to ship to and credit card information. And, and sure you can kind of solve some of that with some of the payment mechanisms, but it ends up looking like a NASCAR race, you know, race car where you've got like eight different ways to check out. It's super confusing. Um, and you know, I, I think the way this gets solved is I, I kind of look at Amazon uh, and uh, internet reporter, internet retailer reports Amazon has about a 10% mobile conversion rate. Um, that feels a little high to me, but they, they kind of get some data of, they know the mobile GMV and then they know the traffic and they kind of divide to get the conversion rate. Um, so, you know, but, but even call it five or 6%, I, I think, you know, that, 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 there's going to be some really big winners and, and the open web essentially is going away on the phone and the winners pack in ID payment and wallet all into one seamless buying experience that's unique to the mobile device. And you get drawn to that because the old desktop metaphor is increasingly painful over time. So um, I think the solution is the uh, Apple and Google eventually get in the game. And if they get serious about this and you'll use the payment system that's already on the phone, uh, kind of like they do in China uh, to pay. And, and Google has a test going on with this because uh, so it's exactly, it's very silly, right? So I'm on my Android. I have all my credentials in Google play uh, same thing for the iPhone. Uh, and then I'm, I'm, I do a Google search. I go to homedepot.com's mobile site. And then now I have to remember my login. Uh, if I don't have one, I have to register. You, you should never have that experience. It should say, I'm on a mobile device, and this mobile device already knows all about this person. So let me give them a much more streamlined experience. So so um, now you may be saying that's how you cross the gap, and maybe we're saying the same thing. But I think that you know it probably looks very, very different than the metaphors we're used to with product pages and those things. I think a lot of that may live up at the phone level versus down at kind of a mobile website level. Yep, I, I absolutely think that is true. And so I do think it, when you boil right down to it, we, we more agree than we disagree, but that wouldn't be fun at all. So it's more fun to highlight the the differences than it is to to highlight the, the fact where you've jumped on my bandwagon. Yeah, and you're clearly wrong. So I, I don't, 
I don't get on your bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear you say that because you were right behind me on the bandwagon, but okay. Um, so let's go to the third question, which I think is a great one. Um, our third question comes from a 20 year old with Amazon and eBay experience. So, A, I just love the fact that there are 20 year olds with, uh, Amazon and eBay selling experience. I think that's awesome. And his question is, I'm interested in e-commerce specifically around disruptive technologies. If you were in my shoes and could go anywhere in the world, what company or business would you dream of being a part of? And that's from Danny S. Yeah, and I uh, this is a channel advisor customer I've known uh, probably for four years. So since he was sixteen, one of the one of the fun parts of channel advisor is just the uh, we have about three thousand customers, and they all have interesting stories. And some of them are at really large companies where they're kind of entrepreneurs. You know, they're they're typically the digital disruptor inside of a large retailer or a manufacturer or something like that. So that that's always kind of an interesting story. They're kind of, you know, tilting at the windmills and, and that kind of thing. Um, but occasionally you meet these folks that are, uh, I, I'm an entrepreneur and started when I was at the ripe old age of like 25. So, so when you meet some of these folks that are high schoolers or just starting college or in the middle of college and, and, you know, um, my favorite story is I, I met this one kid. This is not Danny, but I met this one kid and he was telling me about a story and he got into selling auto parts online. And he was telling me he had gotten one of these cool race car seats for his his car and it didn't fit. Um, so he just sold it on eBay and there ended up being kind of a bidding frenzy for it. And I think he had bought it for like 150 and it sold for $225. So he immediately uh, you know, after installing the seat that worked in his car, he immediately went and bought every one of these seats he could find. And then by the time I had met him, he was into it a year and he was thinking about going to college and he had just told his dad he wasn't going to do that. And um, his dad's like, why? He's like, well, dad, I already make kind of twice your salary. And, you know, I, I think it would be silly for me to waste four years. So, so it was kind of a touche moment, I think, for his so dad. And they, they had converted like his three car garage into like a fulfillment center. And this kid was doing, you know, probably a $3 million business with 10% margins or something like that. So he was making, you know, he was netting probably 300, 350 K. <laughs> so it was just pretty, pretty amazing what some of these, these folks can do. And, and that's, that's one of the fun things about e-commerce is you can, you know, you can build a pretty sizable business and, and even uh, Amazon has let po folks with the, the advent of FBA, there's an amplification thing that goes on there. And, you know, some of these businesses can be, you know, kind of 10 to $15 million business or, or even larger with, with some of these folks. Um, so Danny asked a really good question and, and this one's really tough. A lot of it is, I feel like kind of one of those, uh, you know, financial kind of planning kind of people where uh, a lot of it depends on your, your risk profile. Um, so, um, the, you know, the, even though you're 20, you know, when you're 20, you should have a pretty big risk profile. But that being said, everyone has different levels of risk and, and interest in those kinds of things. So I, I would kind of use it in terms of how far you want to kind of look out. And we've talked about some of these technologies on the show, but you know, um, if I was 20 years, I would be poking around in augmented reality, virtual reality. I think there's going to be a boom there. Um, I'm a big fan of these on-demand kind of economy and, and that. Uh, so I, I'm uh, actively involved in that space. I think that's really interesting. 
I think e-commerce is fine. You know, there's there's still a lot of legs in e-commerce. We're only at, depending on which numbers, and curious, Jason, on which ones you look at, I, I tend to look at the comm score, and I think they're at kind of 11%, 12% penetration. They don't count grocery. If you do count grocery, I think it gets as low as 7 or 8%. So, you know, does, that doesn't get to 100% penetration of, of e-commerce to retail, but, you know, maybe it gets to 30 or 40%. So, so a lot of it depends on, you know, the... Uh, as one entrepreneur to another, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're going to work 60, 80 hour a week. So you might as well just love what you're doing. So, you know, I would kind of experiment with some of these technologies, love what you're doing and, and pick something in that, that range. Um, I'll tell one more interesting story. Um, so we had a channel advisor customer that was a lot like Danny uh, and his name was Josh. And he, uh, he was like, 23, 24 in New York. He had this eBay business. I think he grew it up to kind of like $20 million. And one day he called me and he said, you know, I'm shutting down my eBay business. I was like, oh my God, what happened? Were you suspended or did your supplier dry up? And he's like, no, I got a call from the startup and they had kind of been looking for someone that had commerce technology and, and they made, you know, it's so exciting. I want to go work for the startup. And I was like, what startup could possibly be more exciting than starting your own $20 million business? He said, it's this kind of like limo company called Uber. And they have this thing where you can just like summon a car with the button on your phone. And I was like, okay, never heard of it, but sound, you know, Uber is a weird name. It, you know, kind of is usually meant to mean like, you know, super or something like that. And I was like, okay, go try it. And, uh, sure enough, Josh uh, has been very successful at Uber, and he runs uh, all of Uber New York. So I think he made a wise decision. I don't know what his equity package is, but I wish I had it. <laughs> um, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. First of all, caveat to the other example you you gave, uh, that that uh, first kid that didn't go to college when uh, Amazon brand gated him, his business went away and he didn't have college to fall back on. So I would just say to his father, there probably might've been some, some value in having an education, whether that be a formal uh, institution or otherwise. But uh, I I know for a fact, Danny actually has been running this business while at college. So he's doing both. So kudos to him. Nice. Uh, Even better. So, so Danny, big picture. I, I think the analogy to investment profile makes a lot of sense. And, over the course of your career, you you probably want a well-balanced, diversified uh, portfolio. And so, you know, I like to think of this this matrix of uh, the, the best experiences are to both have those small company entrepreneurial experiences and some larger enterprise experiences. There are absolutely pros and cons to both. Um, and specifically in this disruptive commerce space, you want to have experience both as an actual retailer on the line for selling goods to consumers and solving a, a problem for a consumer, but you also want the sort of uh, vendor experience of working for a platform or a, a service provider or someone that that's helping to solve that problem. So over the course of what what I hope is a very long career for you, um, I think it's great to have touched all four of those boxes. And right now, you've already touched the the retail side and the entrepreneurial small company side. And so I might be looking to move to uh, a interesting platform or vendor in a larger company that potentially has some resources to do things that are really hard to do in an entrepreneurial scale. And, you know, Scott mentioned um, augmented reality, like that's certainly an area where, you know, that's the, the best companies are not super small um, entrepreneurial companies. It, it, you know, it does tend to be 
fairly expensive to to create great content and craft new solutions in that right now. Um, but I would be looking at kind of that, that middleware, not meat and potatoes, e-commerce, not, you know, super bleeding edge, uh, virtual reality. I'm looking at all those distributed commerce opportunities and how are we going to do commerce over media platforms like AdWords and, and PLAs? And how are we going to do commerce over Facebook chat bots? And how are we going to do commerce over these natural language interfaces from Alexa and things like that? Um, the the whole cognitive computing space is super interesting is going to play a major role in in all of those things and so you know if i were you i might be looking for a really interesting role inside a bigger company that owns a core technology in one of those things and so that might be google or facebook or ibm you know or you know uh an agency like like uh you know my role like we we do get an opportunity um, to touch a bunch of different clients that all have similar problems and, and make big investments to try to solve, solve some of these, these problems. And so I, you know, I think those are all interesting areas for you to think about. Um, but you're already off to a great start. I'm going to, I agree. I have to veto IBM. You don't want to go work there. So I, I mean, <laughs> like there are a bunch of these companies that you can kind of make fun of. And IBM is certainly one of them. Um, and all of these, one of the challenges with big companies, they're all going to be screwed up and they're all going to have, you know, significant institutional challenges and, and, um, and, and unfun parts of the project. I would say the IBMs and Microsofts of the world, wow, like big picture, you can look at them and say, Hey, a lot of their, their stuff is like not bleeding edge and they're, you know, uh, slow followers, um, and those kinds of things. IBM really is one of the few companies that's kind of, successfully migrated from the mainframe to the the microcomputer to the software and services business. And, you know, there are folks there working in the Watson group, for example, that are doing super interesting things that are hard to do anywhere else. So I, um, I take Scott's point, but I would say there are interesting labs at IBM. There are interesting labs at Microsoft. There, you know, there are some of these companies that maybe don't have the most sexy reputation for 20 year olds that, that, uh, still are, are great opportunities to do interesting stuff that's going to disrupt commerce. Cool. And if he was interested in Razorfish, I assume there's a career page in there somewhere. Uh, there, there absolutely is. Um, I'm happy to talk to anyone that has four years of Amazon selling experience at age 20. Cool. Do, um, do listeners of the show get some kind of priority in the pipeline for interviews or anything like that? Uh, it's, you know, so, uh, <laughs> Razorfish in particular, uh, the, it's, it's a pure meritocracy. The best candidate will win. It doesn't matter how, how you come in or who you own, uh, or who you know. Um, but, uh, I, you know, less self-serving talking about us in particular and these industries, I, I will say, you know, if, uh, to a close family member or friend, uh, I think retail experience is super important. I have a lot of retail experience in my background and I think that's an important part of the equation, I don't think this year is the most fun year to be working in a retailer. Um, and you know, there, there are ebbs and flows. I think there are going to be good times ahead, but you know, most of the retail gigs right now are turnarounds there. You know, even if you're doing something super interesting on the digital side of the fence, you're working in an enterprise that's going to be closing potentially hundreds or thousands of stores and making tough economic decisions. And it's just, it's, it's not the most fun time to be getting that specific retail experience 
Um, and even if you're at one of those rare retailers, you're at Home Depot or you're at, you're at Ulta or you're at somebody, uh, TJ Maxx that's killing it right now, you still are facing the exact same problems every day and one set of problems that get repeated over and over again. And so I do think, um, roles like the one that I'm lucky enough to be in, um, and also some of these, you know, big platform companies or services companies, uh, one of the fun things is you get to work with so many different retailers that have different challenges um and you're you're frankly a little bit insulated from the you know some of the economic hardships that a lot of traditional retailers are going through right now so it's it is a good place to be for the right folks cool and uh i do think listening to our show helps you get move your career along because you just seem so much more expert and we prepare you for all those tough interview questions you just are more expert absolutely (laughs) Uh, okay, our fourth question, and this one requires a little bit of setup. So um, there was some news this week from uh, Amazon that they're going to open up something like 100 pop-up stores in malls. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, that was – I think it was broke by – Recode broke the news on that. So I tweeted that out, uh, and then I think you retweeted it. And then Cassia <laughs> uh, tweeted to both of us, uh, or you tweeted and I retweeted. I can't, can't remember where it started, but um, – and she said she had a good question. She's like, I'm perplexed. Are malls dying because of Amazon or is Amazon investing in malls and, and kind of will they, you know, uh, will they save malls? So um, as the retail geek, I thought you could take a first shot at that one. Yeah, we've touched on this a couple of times, um, but I apparently haven't been clear enough. So I want to try to spell it out for Cassia. Uh Some malls are dying. Some malls are thriving. So there's probably 100 to 200 malls in the U.S. that we'll call A malls, and they're killing it. They're outperforming um, uh, general retail. They're outperforming the average in e-commerce, and foot traffic is up. Revenue per square foot is very high. And one of the – or a couple of the attributes that most of those malls have is they have stores you've heard of in them called Apple and Tesla. So that's an easy way to sort of identify those A malls is go find those malls that have a thriving Apple store in it or a Tesla a dealership in it. And those malls are are doing really well. And I'm almost certain that when Amazon says we're opening 100 pop-up stores, those are the malls they're targeting. Um, then below that, there's several thousand malls that are really struggling, and we're totally dependent on Sears and Macy's to drive traffic. And the you know the uh, St- Sears is just sort of losing all its inventory and becoming a ghost town. Macy's is closing a bunch of stores. Um, that traffic isn't going there. Those aren't fun places to shop. The customers have moved away from the the suburbs where those malls were located. Um, so they're are a ton of endemic problems in those malls, only one of which is Amazon. Amazon certainly hurts them, but so do a bunch of other uh, things. And so big picture, you don't want to be in those B, C, or D malls. Um, they're going away. Amazon is is one of the the reasons for that. Uh, you, you would love to have an economic interest in the A malls and – Amazon, you know, as well as they're doing in the digital sphere, they have a real problem with marketing for those physical products and and people want to see them to get familiar with them. Um, and they have an awareness challenge that's, you know, Amazon's not a great site for discovery. It's not a great site to to market the the Echo and the Fire. Um, and so, you know, I think they want those pop-up stores because they want to have their own voice in physical places where people can interact with these devices and create that desire. And if you turn back the clock and look at Apple's turnaround, 
when Steve Jobs came back, it was exactly the same strategy. They started opening their own stores. They started opening pop-up shops inside of CompUSA's back then. Um, and then, you know, later, uh, Best Buy and, and, uh, eventually the Walmarts and Targets, all because you need your own physical presence where there's a big, uh, chunk of traffic to introduce that hardware. So that, uh, I hope, I hope that clears things up, uh, vis-a-vis Amazon and the mall. Yeah, but um, so if a mall is dying, will an Amazon pop-up save it? Oh, absolutely not. I don't think Amazon will open a, a store in those malls. And for sure, uh, if Amazon opened a pop-up store in a, a bad mall, um, you, you know they're not going to get any traffic, and that's not going to be very successful for Amazon. Yeah, I'll throw in there. This is a common theme on the show. Um so we appreciate you listening, and it's a good question. The uh, couple of new things I've noticed, the, the Macy's news has caused this kind of like – there's these ebbs and flows of this kind of meme uh, that, that I call Mulligan. Uh And it's this kind of meme that all the malls will close, and, and to Jason's point, I don't think that's true. But there are some scary stats there. Um, the latest articles I've seen, they're, they're quoting a couple of these stats. Um, this one says, in 2010, there were three, 35 million visitors to malls, and according to real estate firm Cushman Wakefield, by 2013, there were 17 million visits. So mall traffic has declined 50% from 2010 to 2013. It's kind of an old data point, but that, I see that one quoted a lot. Um, another one we hear a lot is a new outdoor mall hasn't been built since, what is it, like 2009? That one has been uh, – they talk about that a lot at shop.org. Uh, and then where's this other stat that I thought was interesting? That was the most uh, Green Street Advisors. And I'm not familiar who that is. It's some kind of a, a real estate advisory predicts 15 percent of malls will disappear in the next decade. So, you know, that's that's bad. I don't know how many malls there are, but that feels like hundreds. Um, but it's certainly not 100 percent. So there are you know, 85 percent of malls will survive. Yay. So it is, it, you know, it, it is. I feel bad for those malls that are going to close and it's going to be tough. Um, but there will be survivors. Um, the other thing that's interesting is you, you see this kind of domino effect where in these malls where a Macy's is closing or, you know, JC Penney has trimmed a store or something like that. Um, you do see kind of the, the other mall based retailers take a hit. So, so I think gap and Abercrombie and, um, I saw earlier today that they're not mall related, but Golfsmith. um, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely trouble out in retail land, be it mall or not. And, and there's a little bit of a chain reaction. So, you know, we'll have to see how this plays out over the next kind of, two or three years to, to see when it kind of slows down or accelerates. Um, and then Jason, you, you talk a lot about being overstored throw, throw in some of those stats that you quote there. I think those are always interesting to think about. Yeah. So I think there's about 43 square feet of retail space for every man, woman and child in the U S. Um, and that can, that, that compares with about 15 square feet, uh, in the next most stored countries. And you get down, uh, like those are the most dense retail uh, countries in Europe are at like 15. Um, and you get, you know, to places like China and it's like four square feet. So like 10 times fewer uh, square feet of store per person than, than we have in the U.S. So we're overwhelmingly the most overstored place in the country. There's a lot of good and bad reasons or in the world. There's a bunch, some good and bad reasons for that, but absolutely. There's going to be carnage in retail. There's going to be a ton of store closings as retailers right size for the, the modern era. And that, that's not going to be fun. That's going to be the majority of malls, but for sure, not, not all malls. Um, and I, I, there is this funny, 
you know, you, you got to play the cards you're dealt, right? So um, I, I saw one of the quotes from uh, the CEO of, the, of Gap, and he was talking about the fact that, yeah, we're in a bunch of malls where, where Macy's is closing, and that, you know, that's going to hurt us from a traffic standpoint. But our, part of our lease required that there be a good anchor tenant like Macy's, and we're going to be able to go back to those landlords and get lower rent. As a result of the the Macy's closing, and uh, you know, I feel I feel like that is definitely a, a fine effort to find a silver lining in a what endemically is a, a bad situation for for you know those those retailers that are in those malls. Interesting, I had not heard that. I'm going to take the next question. Yeah. Um, so the last one, and I don't want to judge. I think these were all excellent questions, but this last one seems particularly insightful. Um, this was, uh, why does Jason seem to be right all the time and Scott not so much? And it was from a, a Jason and Scott super fan. Really? Yeah, that's, uh, I think I may throw the flag on that one. That sounds like a little stuffing the ballot box. Are you sure you didn't uh, submit that question? I can neither confirm nor deny, but whoever did it is pretty advanced user of VPNs that was able to mask their IP address. That's all I do know. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to see. We did our, um, you know, the the beginning of the year uh, in the January show, we made some predictions. And so far, I think we've each kind of tallied some in there and we're, we're somewhere around a tie-ish, I would guess. I don't know. I haven't gone back and looked, but we'll do a, you know, in January of 17, I think that's when we'll be able to kind of figure out the answer to that one. Our pontifications, at least. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's it for listener uh, questions this week. If you do want to submit a question and get, uh, feel free to visit our Facebook page and list it there, and we will try to answer it on a subsequent show. And now let's turn to some Amazon news. Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. Hey, Scott, did I see that Amazon is running a new sale this week? Yeah, this is pretty interesting. So they, um, so you and I are, are big Echo fans. And just to remind listeners, there, there's kind of three formats for the Echo. There's the tall Echo, which includes the uh, the speaker. It's about, what is it, eight inches tall or so. Um, and then there's the one that's mobile, that's the tap that you have to kind of like press a button on. Um, that one's not as exciting. And then there's the little tiny one that's the dot. And the dot, it's like a little hockey puck. And it usually, it has a speaker in it. It's kind of not very good. So it's really built to Bluetooth or connect to something kind of more of a speaker system or an audio home system. Actually, uh, have one in my car is kind of a way to have hack Alexa into my car. Um, so what they announced this week was that Dot, which is very popular. So they, they've announced the second generation of the Dot, which is nice, and they've made some improvements to it. They've also lowered the price to $49 and uh, $49.99 to be specific. So that makes it really approachable. And, and you can kind of tell what they're trying to do here is get, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of these devices in every room of your house. And and I think you and I both have kind of gotten to that point with the Alexa. And so it's going to be nice to have you know that available to folks. And in fact, they're selling them in kind of like beer. So there's you can get a six pack uh, of the new dots and that's you pay for five, you get one free. And then you can get a 12 pack where you pay for 10 and you get two free. And they, they're actually are kind of, it's funny. They're kind of packaged like beer. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's funny. They're in like the little two by three grid and then like the 12 pack kind of a thing. Um, 
at the same time they announced a fix to a bug I know that has been driving you crazy because once you get multiple um, echoes in your house, regardless of the form factor, minus the tap, of course, and you say something like, hey, Alexa, play this song, what you'll find is sometimes – and I have this problem in my house. I have uh, a kitchen and then upstairs is a playroom, and we have one in each. And if I'm maybe 10 feet away from the one in the kitchen, the one upstairs, which is a a dot, it picks up my voice before the echo downstairs. So sometimes I'll ask the kitchen one to do something, and things will happen upstairs. Sometimes they'll both do it. Uh, Sometimes neither of them will do it. They'll kind of be both confused. So they've announced that – and this is pretty clever. You can imagine as a software guy, this is – I'm curious on how they did this. Uh, But what they've come out with is a technology they call ESP, uh, which is their signal processing technology. So what they do is when you say a command – the the various devices will talk to each other essentially and try to figure they'll they'll kind of self figure out which one you're closest to, which is a little creepy but uh, it's a nice fix for this. So so in my scenario, the one in the kitchen would say, you know, I've done the math and and based uh, and and you could almost kind of determine, you know, I, I'm sure they could know how long it took to travel to each device and and I don't know if that's how they're doing it, but in some way the one that's closer to you will determine it's the close one and it will answer. Um, so so that's going to be uh, pretty interesting. And I think, you know, this is just another path to this kind of dominance that Amazon has with this. There's there's rumors that Apple's coming out with a competitor and Google announced one uh, at Google I.O. I haven't seen it commercially available. So another kind of turn of the crank from Amazon on the Echo device. Yeah, we're all going to have meshed networks of uh, Echoes in our house. But uh, I, for one, am really looking forward to that bug fix because I live it every day in my house. So you you say things and, and eight echoes reply, or, or how does it work for you? Yeah, in, in particular, my living room is adjacent to our master bedroom, and the the dot in our master bedroom, I feel, is much more sensitive than the, the full echo in our living room. And so, you know, you can be five feet away from the one in the living room and 30 feet away from the one in the master bedroom, and the one in the master bedroom always hears you. And so when you play music, which we play a lot of uh, little kids music in my house at the moment, it, it, you know, you start it, you hear the music in the round because the channel starts in both rooms, uh, often with a slight, a slight offset. Oh, you should do row, row your boat. That would be like totally meta. I I have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Way ahead of me, man. Way ahead of me. Um, that reminds me, I've been meaning to throw in a, um, there's an interesting pop culture reference for the echo. Uh, I'm a big fan of this TV show called Mr. Robot and, um, it has nothing to do with robots. Everyone's always like, why would I watch a show about robots? But it's about cybersecurity and hacker culture and, and, uh, it's a very good show. It's got uh, Christian Slater in it. Um, for those of you that love eighties, uh, stars and, and then the whole cast is just excellent. Um, it's in season two, and in, I don't. I, there won't be any spoilers. But in this season, there's an FBI agent. I won't mention what that FBI agent's doing. Um, but she's very. She's in the cybersecurity group, and she's very careful with cybersecurity. So whenever she comes home, she has this safe that she puts all her electronics into. But then sitting by her bed is an Echo. So then, then so she puts all her devices into the safe, and then she's always like, uh, you know, Alexa, play some classical music or something like that. And it just feels like a total setup. 
that that echo is just begging to be hacked. So I, I'm kind of waiting, waiting for that to happen. Uh, so was, at first I was kind of like really, you know, impressed that, you know, the show was so with it that they had the echo on there. And then it occurred to me, Hmm, why would you lock all your phone? If you were so cautious about security, why would you do that? And then just like have this listening device kind of out in your, in your house. So, um, so I'm going to kind of make a little prediction on that one, that that thing is, is, you know, probably going to be hacked, unfortunately. So uh, it'll be interesting to kind of watch that. Uh, another Amazon thing I wanted to throw out there real quick. Uh, one of my favorite analysts uh, out there, um, this guy is crazy. So he is, um, so in the in the public market, uh, you have these uh, analysts that follow companies and they, they kind of predict how they're going to do and what their stock price will be in X number of years and that kind of thing. Um, and most large companies have 10, 20, 30 analysts that follow them. Um, if there's an analyst that kind of seems to have the uh, buy sides thinking on a stock, it's called the axe. So they kind of like swing the axe on the stock is kind of where that comes from. Um, so Gene, Gene Munster uh, at Piper Jeffrey, he is the Apple axe. You see him on CNBC all the time. He puts out, out these numbers about you know how many iPhones and iPads they'll report. He also follows Amazon. Uh, and he came out with some pretty interesting data on Amazon and he took the fulfillment center data that, that we put out and a bunch of other people put out there now. Um, and what's interesting is he looked at that and kind of plotted it on a map. I'm sure he had his uh, team do this. Um, but the conclusion is that right now with this kind of announced build out that Amazon will have by the year uh, in 2016 with these 18 to 20 new fulfillment centers, they will now have 44% of the U.S. population will be less than 20 miles away from a fulfillment center. Uh, and there's a chart in there that's really dramatic. So, so kind of, you know, mentally kind of imagine a bar at 45%, let's say, just kind of round up. If you go back just to 2012, four years ago, they had uh, the similar reach, again, kind of a 20-mile kind of radius uh, to 7% of the U.S. population. So, so they've gone from 7% of the population within 20 miles to 45% over a four-year period, uh, which is – pretty scary amazing when you think about these drone programs you know it i everyone uh, a lot of people i talk to think it's all kind of hooey but but i think amazon very much you know it, it, they plan on getting these fulfillment centers close enough that they can do that last five or ten miles with a drone if not they can use a flex driver which is their kind of uber kind of a system that kind of thing so um when retailers feel like their proximity to customers with stores is a huge win uh i think they should kind of check out this chart and it's kind of the jaws music cranks up when you look at this chart and we'll put it in the show notes uh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it, I would point out since Amazon comes to you, you don't go to them. The, the proximity is more f- almost for their convenience than yours. Um, so while 44% of the population might be within 20 miles of a fulfillment center, uh, I think we've seen other stats that Amazon will serve over 50% of the U.S. population with their prime now one hour service already. So, you know, it's it's very substantial and that rate of growth is super substantial. And, you know, frankly, that's already a better footprint than a lot of specialty retailers have. Um, I would say just to put in perspective um, in the big picture, you look at the largest retailer in America, Walmart, and 90% of the U S population lives within 15 miles of a Walmart. So while Amazon's growing amazingly fast and is doing a terrific job, the, they they still do have a ways to go to get the kind of saturation that the very largest retailer in the world has. Yeah, and maybe they don't, you know, maybe they've decided they don't need everybody. So maybe they stay, you know, once you get to 50 or 60, you're, you're, you know, maybe you're close enough. 
Yep. And I, I also think they don't perfectly uh, aspire to match Walmart. So Walmart's focus is really middle America and where their coverage is worst is uh, on those coasts and particularly near big cities. And those high density big cities are Amazon's favorite places to play. Got it. Uh, and now it's time for some non Amazon news. Yeah, so just a few quick things we'll cover this week. Uh, Facebook announced their new APIs for Messenger, which allow folks to write Facebook Messenger bots that are commerce-enabled. So we predicted this earlier on the Jason and Scott show, and we're now seeing it come to pass. I really feel like this week is a huge week for um, the the uh new mobile use cases with uh safaris now supporting apple pay and facebook starting to deploy commerce enabled chatbots i think we're going to see a lot of new interesting use cases for commerce on a mobile phone that um are much lower friction than the the desktop metaphors of the past yeah, and it's it's uh having been in this kind of news cycle in e-commerce for a long time now. Um, you know what what happens is the summer's kind of slow, and then right after Labor Day, you have this drumbeat up until Halloween of cool new stuff. So so I suspect um, we're we're only maybe halfway through this, and and probably at Summit and and into the Halloween time, there may be some even more cool things. I, I did notice kind of just in the you know, uh, amongst the the folks out there that think about this stuff, um, you know, half the reaction to the Facebook thing was like, you know, yeah, this is interesting. And then the other half was, you know, none of these messenger apps are any are useful at all. And this is just more kind of, you know, who cares kind of a thing. So uh, you're starting to see some some kind of negativity around the whole idea of will the app that you know the chat kind of apps and, and that kind of thing take off here. And so it, it's going to be interesting to see how long that does take to get traction. It is. And obviously, you know, time will tell who's right. I, for one, am very bullish on the the chat stuff. Having been in a bunch of other markets where it really took off, I, I absolutely see the potential here. And, you know, having having lived through the 2000s, I remember people, you know, making a lot of smart aleck comments about how useless e-commerce sites were. And, you know, I remember people making joke websites like, but I don't want to buy my toothpaste online.com. And I don't know about you, but I get all my toothpaste online now. Yep. Uh in other news, a good friend of mine over at Google is uh, running Express program now, and that's their kind of same-day delivery, uh, Brian Elliott. And they announced uh, a couple things. Number one, um, they're getting rid of perishables. So, uh, you know, things obviously like meats, vegetables, milk, that kind of stuff. Uh, but because of that, they're now going to pretty dramatically expand the program. They're going to be in 20 states and a lot of new markets. Um, this was in a test program in I think it was five or seven markets. It never really kind of got much outside of that. Um, it had a limited store f- footprint. The the two popular ones were Whole Foods and Costco. Um, and kind of curious, since you're you're Mr. Grocery, what what you think about it? Yeah, I, I think two things are really interesting. First of all, uh, Chicago was one of the original Express test markets, so I've used the service several times and had really good experiences with it. Um, as distinct from from Amazon, where they're delivering out of a fulfillment center, uh, Express is delivering items from a local store. Um, so there are all the pros and cons associated with that. So now that they're expanding it to outside of a few test markets to sort of broad global uh, or or national coverage, one of the things I'm going to be really interested to see is if and how they integrate that with traditional Google 
product advertisement. So you you could certainly imagine having a express badge on PLAs and Google AdWords and having that be a really strong call to action when you when that ad pops up and it says, you know, get this product in one hour by by clicking here. So I think that's one of the the unique strengths that that Google has to bring uh, and I'll be interested to see how they leverage that with Express. And then on the flip side, Obviously, delivering perishables is particularly challenging, and so Google's solution um, to to national expansion was let's tackle the perishable problem later and put that aside for now. And that really highlights the the challenges of cost effectively delivering perishables and groceries to people's homes. And while I think there are going to be niche use cases where folks will have groceries delivered to their home, in the big picture, I don't think that delivery is the winning model for perishables. I think it is going to be a some flavor of buy line pickup in store. And that's where we're seeing, you know, Walmart and Kroger put a lot of effort. That's potentially what this new Amazon Project X is. And so this, you know, Google's play seems to fit pretty pretty well in into my view of the world that, you know, we're going to have very fast delivery for most of this general merchandise, and we're going to be byline picking up and storing for a lot of the perishable goods. Speaking, though, of the drones, there's some fun drone news out this week. Um, I know that Google has uh, launched their first test, and I think this is in Virginia Tech, and they are delivering Chipotle burritos via drone. Yummy. You just kind of sit there with your, uh, you look up at the sky with your mouth open, like you're eating a snowflake and a burrito falls in your mouth. It's, it's pretty amazing. And if it, if it's at enough velocity, you don't even really have to chew. You just boom burrito. (laughs) Um, but one problem is if I'm going to get a burrito delivered, I'm also going to want something to drink with that burrito. And so another company seems to have solved this problem in Las Vegas, in Reno, 7-Eleven is testing drone delivery. And, you know, amongst other things they're delivering is, of course, the 7-Eleven Slurpee. So I'm waiting for the overlap of those two tests so I can get my burrito and my Slurpee delivered by a single drone. Seems, you know, they have pretty big, I think Slurpees go up to 64 ounces. That's that's pretty heavy. Uh, and, you know, think about the spilling and the, you know, uh, if you had a cherry Slurpee and, you know, this thing could look like it's slinging blood around. It, it could be kind of a, a messy delivery. So it's going to be interesting to see how they pull that off. So, Scott, uh, not surprisingly, it has happened again. We've used a perfectly good hour plus of our listeners' time. So I do want to make a final reminder that two weeks from now, we'll be broadcasting live from shop.org. And I would certainly encourage everyone to attend the show and make it a point to come visit a live podcast, be part of the show. We'll look forward to meeting you in person and answering live questions on the show and recapping everything there. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll at NRF. We're going to be in the exhibit area at the clubhouse. So come see us there and keep those questions coming. We really enjoyed having those here on the show today. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page. You have to like the page. And then in there, you can just post your questions. Uh, if you want to keep them more anonymous, we have put a link out there where you can fill out a form where we do not know your identity and you can just put in anything you'd like to. Uh, thanks for listening and have a great week. And with that, I'd love to wish everyone a happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.